Well, if you want to open your Bibles or get your electronics working, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, uh, mostly in the 8th chapter, sneaking into the ninth now and again. And uh, whether you've noticed it or not, I'm kind of these last three weeks, counting this week, I'm focusing on some of the, the later teachings of Jesus before he actually starts that last trip to Jerusalem and working our way towards what we call Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, all of Jesus' teachings are obviously important. But I sometimes imagine, boy, the, the urgency he must have felt in his spirit as he knew the days were coming to an end that he was going to be able to be imparting to his disciples and the teaching that he would have been giving in those last few days. And the ministry, I tried to look through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and try to put it together to, to track his busyness those last couple months. And you lose track. He's so busy and he's here and there and everywhere doing signs and wonders and teaching and preaching and offending the religious of the day. So this morning we're going to be in Mark. Let's pray first. God, we just pray for your, your, your spirit to bring life to your word. God, as I share it to the best I can, Father, we thank you that your word is true. God, it is to encourage us, to strengthen us, to keep us on that right track of becoming more like Christ as your Holy Spirit works in us. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message is simply, Who Do You Say Jesus Is? Who Do You Say Jesus Is? And for many of you, immediately you'll realize that that is a question that Jesus asked. He says, who do you say I am? He asked first, who do the people say I am? And then who do you say I am? And we're going to be looking at that this morning. Have you ever had to wait for just the right time to tell somebody something? You know that if you, if you tell them at that particular instant or this particular time, it may not be received the way you intended or they may not quite understand what you want them to understand. So you kind of wait for just the right moment to tell somebody something so that the message that you intend really gets across to them. I believe in Mark chapter 8. We look at this, what we're going to be looking at. Jesus has decided it's the right time. There's been all kinds of evidence and all kinds of hints and some even not so subtle hints as to who he was and what his mission was. But evidently he has decided now's the right time to tell them who I really am, and what I really came here to do. My identity, my purpose, my mission. His true identity, his true mission on earth. The question would be, were they ready? Would they understand the message? How would they respond to the message? Would their faith be secure enough, grounded enough, that when they hear the message, it wouldn't throw them off track? Because the message isn't one that they would have expected. At least not the way they would have interpreted it. So we're going to look at this. And Have you ever watched a TV program? You turn on the TV and you've been waiting for this program and maybe it's one of your favorites and it starts and all of a sudden it starts kind of like right in the middle of the action. And you're watching it and all of a sudden the action stops and then you see something on the TV screen that says something like six hours earlier, six days earlier. 24 days earlier. And you realize, okay, they showed us a little bit about what is happening now, but they want to give you a little bit of the background so you understand what's happening now. That's kind of what I'm going to do this morning. 
we're going to jump back and forth. There's this period here, a gap of six days. And I know that because the Bible says very clearly, and six days later, and something happens. And then I look at this something that happens, I go, wow, that's one of the most amazing things I see in all the Scripture, sort of the death, short of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then I go, I wonder what happened. Just a few days earlier, six days earlier, that would have caused this event to happen now and in this way and in this place. So we're going to fast forward six days from Mark and we're going to jump into Mark 8 and you're actually going to jump into Mark chapter 9 a little bit and look at verses 2 through 9. I'm not going to read the verses, you can read it, but your heading probably says something like the transfiguration of Jesus. The transfiguration of Jesus. And that transfiguration is an interesting word. It's in the, in the Greek, it's metamorpho. Metamorpho. And we get the word metamorphosis. And when you hear the word metamorphosis, a lot of you, if you know what that means, you think of that little caterpillar that wraps itself in a cocoon. And after a period of time, the cocoon, the cocoon breaks open and something completely different comes out. A complete transformation, a change. And that's what the word here, transfigured, or transfiguration, means. That there is a change into another form. And what is the change? We have Jesus taking three of his disciples. He's taking Peter and a couple of brothers, John and James, and taking him with him. And as they're there with Jesus... It's all of a sudden, they realize something's happening that's never happened before. They see Jesus, the glory, the light, the bright light of Jesus. Now, don't fall into the trap of thinking like, gee, somebody turned a spotlight on Jesus. No, the light was coming from within. The glory of the King of glory was being revealed in Jesus. It says the light was as bright as the sun. It says His garments were as white as light. The miracle of the glory of Jesus being revealed at that moment. I read one commentator said, Oh, that wasn't the miracle. The miracle was that Jesus contained it as often as He did as He walked the earth. The glory They get to see it. And that's not the strangest thing that happened. All of a sudden, beside Jesus, they see Moses and Elijah. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know. They just did. It doesn't tell us. And here's Moses and Elijah. Moses, kind of for us, representing the law. Elijah, representing the prophets. What we have here coming together is all of the revelation of the Old Testament and Jesus. Everything that they had spoken, taught, and heard about coming together. Don't you wonder what was going on with those three? Well, you don't have to wonder if you read the Word. It says they were talking. Well, that's nice. Wouldn't you love to know what they were talking about? Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Well, in Luke, it tells you what they were talking about. They were standing there. We see a picture of them floating there. I don't know if they were floating or standing. All I know, it was bright light. And they were talking. 
And we know that the disciples that were there heard what they were talking because it's recorded in the Gospel by Luke, who must have gotten it firsthand from Peter and James and John. A little sidebar. You ever wonder why they were his favorites? Those three always, you know, he had the 12 and then he had the three. I hadn't really thought of it this way before, but we all know Peter. But Peter was Peter. If there was a way to do something a little bit goofy, crazy, Peter did it. And then there's these two brothers, James and John. You know what Jesus called them when he called them into the discipling? The two sons of thunder. They're the two guys that when Jesus was getting a little mocking and ridicule from some people, he said, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume those losers? Or something like that. I'm wondering if he didn't call these three and keep them close to him because he knew that he needed to. Because if he would let them alone, they'd get in trouble. Or maybe he realized the leadership capacity that was in these three. Peter, preaching those powerful messages. James, being the first martyr of the disciples. And John, the disciple who Jesus loved, who died, the only one that died a natural death and gave us revelation. But for whatever reason, these disciples got to hear. And what they were talking about was Jesus' soon departure in Jerusalem. Man, as I study that, I wish they would tell me more about the conversation. Can you imagine Moses, the one who was given the law by God, standing there and realizing, I am talking about the one who is going to fulfill all the law. God's plan coming into clarity. Elijah, the one who prophesied and and all his mighty prophetic words, knowing here he is. We're going to see the object of all that prophecy throughout the Old Testament coming to pass in this man, Jesus. Wow. And these three disciples are there. Why? It's interesting. As they're... They're watching and listening. All of a sudden, there's this cloud. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says this, And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Peter, good old Peter, he he is so blown away by what's taken place, and actually it tells us they were a little frightened. He just blurts out without thinking, wow, God, this is really cool. Let's make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Oh, Peter. Without thinking, what he had just done is made Jesus and Moses and Elijah equals. They were not equals. Jesus is the Messiah. And this cloud comes, and this voice comes out of this cloud. God speaks from this cloud. And He said, this is my beloved Son. In one of the other Gospels, it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in Luke, it actually says, This is my Son, the Chosen One. But in all three Gospels, it says these words, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Now, if God came in a cloud and spoke those words to me, I'd probably do better in my walk. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. At this time, why now? Why is Jesus? Why is this transfiguration taking place now? Why six days later? What happened six days before? Listen to him because there's going to be competing voices speaking competing things. 
Oh, it's so true today. We need to listen to him, just as the disciples needed to listen to him. And even the things that they listened to and heard, they still couldn't always interpret and understand correctly, and neither do we. But the exhortation, the command, is to listen to him. Listen to him in the competing voices. Why did Jesus do it at this time? Well, if I look back, what came before, the six days earlier, I think we can get an idea of what maybe was the reasoning for the timing of this event. Obviously, all we, we all know it was God's plan. It was his time. But the significance of what took place those six days before. Jesus had just told them something. And what he had told them was this. I'm going the way of the cross. And all of you need to spiritually go the way of the cross. The cross. Now you and I could get some picture in our mind of a decorative cross that you can't see behind the screen or some cute little gold earrings or a sweet necklace that's a cross. No, that didn't even come close to their minds. They didn't think of it. The cross had one meaning in those days and the cross meant death. It was an instrument of death. And this is what the message was six days before the transfiguration that Jesus was giving them. Death. So we're going to look back and look at the conversation all that took place in that period six days before. But I want to even give a little context to what was taking place there in the previous weeks, maybe a couple months. Uh, If you want to put up the, the map, These last couple months, Jesus was spending almost all his time ministering right around the Sea of Galilee. If you'll see over here in Galilee, you see Nazareth, that's his hometown, that's where he was born. You see Cana just above it, remember the wedding feast of Cana, they had to travel to the wedding. And then you see the Sea of Galilee, and you'll see Capernaum there on the northwest side, Bethsaida straight on the north edge. And these other towns, will, if, you, if you have this map and you look and you read the stories, you're going to see Jesus going from here to there. And then he crosses over and he goes, what were some of the things happening? Well, over here on that side, my right right now, your right, God, they fed 5,000 people. And then they crossed over the river and he went out and he went out and he walked over there in that Syrophoenicia, Syrophoenicia area and it says, there came a Syrophoenician woman to him who said, I got a daughter who's demon-possessed. And Jesus said, no. And then she pleaded with him a little and he delivered her demons. He came back, he ministered around, and he came back and kind of, we guess, the best guess is somewhere between Capernaum Capernaum and Magdala. um, It's where they fed the 4,000. And then they got in the boat again. And they just kept ministering. And then one day they got in the boat and they went from that Magdala area and it says they went to Bethsaida. And then it says in Bethsaida, they left in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. It says, And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. You can't see it on the map because it's a little too far north. Go ahead and go to the next map. This map would show you some of the trips back and forth across the Sea of Galilee that Jesus made. Up there about number five 
where they fed the 5,000, about where number two is, that's where they believe he cast all the legion of demons into those pigs and they jumped off the cliff. Over here, number six, the area where he fed the 4,000 and the traveling back and forth. If you would go back to the other map for a second, I just want you to get a picture of this. If you, if you could go straight south, out of the Sea of Galilee is the, the Jordan River. And if you follow it straight south, about 70 miles, you come to what we call the Dead Sea. And at the north edge of the Dead Sea, if you're coming down from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, you took a right and you went about, oh, 20 miles, you'll come to Jerusalem. So this would be the area, but in particular, that area where Jesus was at. And then in chapter 8, they're at Bethsaida, and it says they're heading north up to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and they're speaking, teaching. And this with Jesus is with his disciples. And it brings us to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, it says, On the way, he questions his disciples, saying to them, Who did the people, who did they say that I am? Now, I'm pretty sure, and I think you'd probably agree, Jesus knew what they were saying about him. So he wasn't ignorant looking for information. So why would he ask? I believe he'd ask so the disciples could realize some of the competing voices that are out there. And the disciples responded, well, some of them say you're John the Baptist. Kind of Herod was kind of almost pushing that rumor because he was really afraid John the Baptist, whom he beheaded, was coming back and going to get even. And some of them said, no, you're Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. You're supposed to come back and prepare the way. And others were saying, oh, you're one of the other prophets. Now, those are all complimentary things towards Jesus, but they're all wrong. He wasn't John the Baptist. He wasn't Elijah. He wasn't another one of the prophets from the Old Testament. So he turns then and he says, Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? That is the ultimate question for all mankind. Who do you say Jesus is? In verse 28, And they behold him saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others... One of the prophets in verse 29, but he continued questioning, but who do you say I am? And Peter, bless his heart, speaks up. And I believe he spoke up, and the other disciples were probably in agreement. But he says, thou art the Christ. In the Hebrew, that would have been, thou art the Messiah. And when we look in Matthew and Luke, we see thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. And Jesus goes, you nailed it, Peter. But the question is, do you understand? Because just that term, Messiah, the anointed one, could be misinterpreted, misunderstood. In those late New Old Testament times, the, the phrase, the anointed one, had come to mean the ideal king, anointed and empowered by God, to deliver his people and set up the righteous kingdom. And when they hear that, there's this possibility that they would miss completely who he was as the Messiah because of the mindset, and most all of us understand, that they were looking for Superman in a robe to come 
and set him free of the captivity, the burden of the Roman Empire. Coming to reestablish that kingdom of God where the Jewish people were ruling and reigning in quote-unquote righteousness. And Jesus understands that they could really be misunderstanding him. In verses 31 and the first part of verse 32, Jesus then reveals his mission, and in my translation it says plainly. You could say as clearly as he possibly could. He says these words. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Almost as if to say, did you get it? But Peter had evidently quit listening before he even got to the end. Because he evidently didn't even hear the part about rising again. Peter, all he heard was, what? You're going to suffer, be rejected, and you're going to die? But Lord, and it says he took him aside. Good old Peter. He took him aside. Be rejected, be killed, rise again. That's my mission. Not what they expected. Not what they wanted to hear. Even though they'd been foretold this was what was going to happen. Just listen to as I read this short paragraph. The prophecy of Isaiah said, He is despised and rejected of men. That has to be fulfilled. Isaiah also said he would be numbered with the transgressors in his death. That had to be fulfilled. David in the 22nd Psalm described his death by crucifixion. That had to be fulfilled. And so Jesus is telling them, look, it's not what you think it's going to be. I'm going to have to be rejected. Daniel had said, but the Messiah, he will be cut off. That had to happen. And not receive the kingdom, Daniel said. That had to be fulfilled. And so Jesus is really, I think, seeking to prepare them for what's coming so they understand. Listen to me. There will be competing voices. Listen to me. At the transfiguration, I'm, all, I'm trying, to, trying to get in my head, could this be part of the reason? Maybe the main reason. This is my beloved son, Listen, listen to what he has to say. Because Peter, he jumped in before he even heard, in three days you'll rise again. So what did Peter do? Well, he didn't understand that because of two great facts, this had to happen. The first fact was sin. And boy, when you think of the crucifixion of Jesus what worse sin could there possibly be? And the second great fact was God's love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever believes. But Peter, he couldn't wrap his mind around it because once, once he heard the whole suffer, rejection, die thing, it just fired him up. And, and it says that he, he took Jesus aside. And he begins to rebuke Jesus. God, that guy can go from the mountaintop to the valley in a heartbeat, can he? Just like you and me. 
And he starts to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus, in his mercy, cuts him off. But then he rebukes him, and I'm, you know, not a lot of mercy, maybe. Because he says, what? Get behind thee, Satan. Wait a minute, just a few minutes ago you were saying, Peter, if you read it in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, oh, Peter, you're you. God declared that to you. God reveals that to you. You are Peter, the rock. And then he says, get behind thee, Satan. And then he just doesn't leave it with that, but he gives the reason why he says that. In verse 33, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. Listen to him. Setting your mind on man's interests. In his case, in the case of most of the people, they were thinking about man's interests. They were thinking, Send the Messiah on a big horse with a big sword. Fire up the army and let's go wipe out the Romans and establish the kingdom. God's interests. They were looking for a different Messiah. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do you believe I am? Do you believe I'm the Messiah that I am? Or do you believe I'm the Messiah you want me to be? Same question for us today. Who do you believe that I am? Is Jesus the Messiah who came and was suffering and rejected and crucified, died, buried, and risen? Or are we looking for a different Messiah? One to make us feel better? One to give us whatever we want? One to to bail us out whenever we're in trouble? Who do you say Jesus is? And then Jesus goes on and he clearly lays out three requirements for being a disciple. So if you want to learn about discipleship, here's a good place to go. And if you're thinking about man's interests, you aren't going to like it one bit. He says, starting in verse 34 through 38, he says, he calls the disciples together after he rebukes Peter And he says to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes to be one of my disciples, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That was bad enough, but he goes on. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, I think he was looking forward to 2015. And he says, The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Boy, he lays it out plainly, clearly. If you want to be my disciple, If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Remember, at that time when a Jew heard the cross saying all it was was a symbol, an instrument of death. The trip to the cross was a one-way trip. We need to understand that today, and maybe this picture will help. When we accept Christ, 
die to self, we go to that cross. The tendency is for many people to turn around and go back and live just about like they were before they went to the cross. There's no return trip. There shouldn't be a return trip. When we go to the cross, the path we're to take is beyond the cross. The goal isn't the cross. The goal is the glory of God. And so many people who have prayed a prayer, said they accepted Christ or whatever, yeah, they're broken. There's an emotional moment. And they may have already made it all the way to the cross. And I don't know what happens there because only God does, but so many of them turn around and go back to the way they were living before. Back to the world. And when he says... Those that are ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous generation, I will be ashamed of them. That ought to rise up in us a little bit of fear of the Lord. In our culture, there's a lot of competing voices. We need to listen to Him. Those competing voices are saying, there is a different Messiah. As a matter of fact, there's a whole bunch of Messiahs. There is many roads that lead to God. Garbage. Jesus was a good man, a good prophet, all those things. Baloney. If he didn't rise from the dead and he isn't the Son of God, he was nuts and a liar. There's competing voices. Are you going to be ashamed of me and my word? Your word says marriage is between one man and one woman. There's competing voices. Are you going to be ashamed of my word or are you going to be proud of who I am and what my word says? Abortion's a woman's choice. That one should make us throw up. His word declares that all life is a gift from God. Are we going to be ashamed of His word or are we going to stand on His word and proclaim His word with love? And I could go on down the list of those competing voices. We could go, go for the gusto. It's all about you and what you want. Just enjoy life. Get it all while you can. Don't worry about who gets in your way. Get even with those who hurt you. It's all the competing voices of an adulterous generation. That ultimate question, who do you say that I am? It sounds so nice when you read it and you don't apply it to you and me, doesn't it? Who do I say Jesus is? You know, in in the transfiguration, I believe that those disciples, Jesus was was trying to to take them beyond those words, you're going to go to the cross, because they were misunderstanding and they were misinterpreting. It would have been easy for those disciples to lose some confidence, wouldn't you think? I walked away from everything, Lord, and now, three years later, you tell me you're going to get suffer, you're going to suffer, be rejected, and die, and I'm supposed to go to the cross also? Jesus, at that transfiguration, displays his glory. And not only does he display his glory, he gives clear evidence that there is a life beyond this life. Moses had been dead for about 1,400 years. Elijah had been taken to heaven without dying over 900 years ago. And yet there they stood. Wow, your word is true. There is a life beyond this life. 
There is a life that leads to glory in the presence of God. We will see the fullness of His glory. All these things would, should be rising up in the disciples, but be rising up in us even as we read the story. There is evidence. There's proof. Yes, He was, he was to suffer and be rejected, but look what we just saw. Even though that's all going to happen, they're going to nail Him to a cross. He's still in control. He's still in control. We don't have to worry. We're suffering. We're, we're being rejected. We're going through some tough times. There's some big mountains in our way. We don't need to worry. He's still in control. And there is a life beyond this life. In the fullness of the glory of God, we have evidence. We have proof. And the disciples... John and Peter and James got to see it firsthand. We get to look back and we even get to see more of the story because he's given us his word. We need to remember the goal isn't the cross. We have to take up our cross. We have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and die to self because without death there is no resurrection into the new life. That's amazing. That's not the way man thinks. It's the way God thinks. That wouldn't be man's interest. That would be God's interests. And he spoke clearly to him and plainly to him. This is what's going to happen. I think it's an awesome story. It's a true story. But unless we apply it and ask some questions of ourselves, it's just a story. So let me just ask a couple questions. I think you've heard the first one before. Who do you say Jesus is? You know, how you answer that question will determine how you live. And how you're living reveals how you answered the question. Think about that for a second. The way I'm living is really how I answer that question. Not necessarily the words I say. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you ashamed of Jesus and his word? What does that look like in our lives? There are many opportunities that we have to stand up with love, but also with boldness for who Jesus is and for his word. There are people out there all the time, and if you don't run into them, you're not walking in circles you should be. You're going to run into people who are going to be cursing the name of Jesus. They're going to be denying that he even exists. They're going to be making fun of Christians. They're going to be using the Lord's name in vain. And what do you do? Silence is often perceived as agreement. Did you know that? There is a way to stand up for who Jesus really is and for his word with love. It may not be received. That's okay. The rejection is going to be part of the deal. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, when I read, if you're ashamed of me and my word, I'm going to be ashamed of you. I don't want to go there. Praying for a righteous boldness to, to rise up in us. When we look back at what Jesus said, we can see that it's all been fulfilled. We have such an advantage over the original disciples. We can see that it's all been fulfilled. We have their lives as examples. We, we can know that there's life beyond this life. We can know that there is a place where we're going to experience the presence of God's glory in its fullness. Really, 
if we look honestly at anything intellectually, with honesty, we have all the evidence we need. So you come back to that same question. Who do we say Jesus is? And I think that's the question he wants to ask us, each one of us. And I would encourage you to meditate on that. Don't be quick with a flippant answer. Consider what it really means when you give that answer. If he is who he says he is, our lives should begin to look more and more and more and more like the life of Christ as we go down that path, as the Holy Spirit is working in us. We shouldn't be coming to the cross and turning around and going back to the other stuff. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you so much that you saw fit to give us your word to reveal yourself to us, reveal, reveal our future to us. God, to reveal all of your promises that are there, all the warnings that are there, all the admonitions, the commands that are there. And that you also then gave us your Holy Spirit to live and dwell in each one of us to be our teacher. So Lord, I pray that you will take these things we've looked at this morning and, and we ask Holy Spirit that you would teach us you would reveal these things to us, that you would bring about the desired effect of those words in our lives today. Reveal those things in our life that may not line up with who we say Jesus is. God, grant us repentance that we'd be quick to confess those things. And Lord, that we would walk beyond the cross, continuing that path to the glory that awaits us one day. And Lord, I pray now that you would watch over us as we go our different directions. Lord, protect us, keep us safe. But Lord, I pray for those opportunities to be light, to be salt, to be fulfilling that great commission to go and make disciples, that you would be glorified in all of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One, before you leave, I just want to encourage you. Uh, we had a family from the Ballotton area lose a 21-year-old son in a car accident late Friday night. Uh, the Bundy family, B-U-N-D-Y, just encourage you to be praying for them. It was one of those deals where the accident happened sometime late in the evening, Friday night, and the young man's son, dad is the one who found the vehicle then the next morning. Um, you can only imagine what that'd be like. So let's just pray right now for them and and so many of you knew Mark Peterson and Kathy. He's related to the Sandersons. Uh, Mark's dad, Dwayne, also passed away this weekend. So, Lord, we do pray that you would be the comforter in these situations. God, we pray for somehow in both situations that you'd be glorified. God, we pray in particular for the, the Bundy family and this death of one so young. I pray for Dave, his dad, who, who found this and came on the scene. Lord, we just pray that, that you would truly, truly comfort them. Draw themselves to you. Draw them to yourself, Lord. I pray, God, that you would use this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.